Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father, he has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding and obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Please open up the uh, service sheet you've got in front of you, a bit of the Bible, Psalm 103 is printed on there. If you've got a Bible, please turn back so that's open on your lap so we can refer to it together. It's on page four of the service sheet. Um, Come with me to nine and a half years ago. We're in Epsom Hospital and our second child, not sure what flavour we're going to get, pink or blue, is about to be born and it's uh, sonograph time. I think that's what it's called. So um, Jo was there, she's uh, laid on the slab and uh, pulls up her uh, top and some slime is poured on her tummy and then comes the machine that uh, shows you what can only be described as a black and white alien. I don't know how it happens, but something happens in my heart, so I'm drawn to, in a protective and loving and affectionate way, this black and white alien. Then came some words from the lady that was helping us. What what, what are they called? The sonographer. Some words that give you a great deal of confidence when you're in a medical sphere. She said, this is the first time I'm doing this. My face dropped. Uh, I checked she wasn't cross-eyed. She wasn't, so we were okay. But then, and being fueled with anxiety because it's her first time, she then said some other words that also uh, gave me cause for concern. She said, do you mind if I just press this button? What's the button going to do? Oh, it's a new machine to me and I'm new here. Okay, Um, yeah, you can press the button. She pressed the button and something amazing happened. New technology was around. It was, you know, nine and a half years ago. And this black and white 3D alien became a 4D person. She pressed this button. She said, it's the first time I've ever done this. She pressed a button and then thanks to 3D mapping, you couldn't just see limbs, you could see toes. 
You didn't just see a skull with eye sockets, you saw a face with uh, uh, eyes that were about to be moving. You could see ears with detail, you can see a person. 3D black and white alien became a 4D person. Just thanks to a uh, press of a button, me being, I'm sure I'm Scottish at some point, I said, how much for a printout of that? Five pounds, you can keep it, I don't want it. I'll see them soon enough. Um, I said, but this is just the touch of a button, 3D became 4D, and it's a person, not an alien. You know, if you did a survey outside the Ashley Centre, I could do one here this morning. Whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, there, there are most people in our culture who still agree that there is a God of some sort. But the issue can be that most of our understandings of God, if we're not a Christian, is a, a 3D version, maybe even a 2D, maybe even a one-dimensional understanding of who God is. So if there is a God, and perhaps we think there is one, there's a higher force, they might be uh, a force for cosmic good, but they're remote if they exist. They're a force of energy, they could be something like a benevolent grandfather. They could be, if we've read the work of Richard Dawkins, a bit like a, a clockmaker, someone who started the work with a bit of power and a world with a bit of power, and then they've taken a step back and now they're not actively engaged in the world. We, we can have our perceptions of who God may be, but actually they're just a, a remote being, a bit like a, an alien on a sonograph. But one of the signs you become a Christian is when you stop seeing God remote and you see him personally. You stop seeing God as someone who's just simply far off and transcendent, that's a big Bible word. You see them as imminent and up close. You stop seeing God in a simplistic way and you see him as he is, which is complex. We could say from the Bible that God is a father. We could say that God is a king. We could say that God is a friend. We could say that God is a lover. We could say that God is a judge. We could take any one of those labels and just say God is just like that in a one-dimensional way. But the problem is... We need to have a definition and an understanding of the person of God, which includes all the capabilities and all the powers and all the imagery and all the metaphors that the Bible has to explain him with. You can't explain God in one dimension or two or three or even four dimension with a press of a button on a sonograph machine. You need the Bible to see who God is because he's revealed himself to us through his son. And God, just like a person, because he's a personal God, is complex. One-dimensional understandings of who God is that will never do justice to the biblical God. I want us to look at one aspect. He's a father, he's a friend, he's a lover, he's a king. I just want to look from Psalm 103 at one of those aspects. He's our father. He's our father. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is a father and then how should we respond? Two things to do. What does it mean that God is our father? Number one, it means that we can live in intimacy. It means that we can live in intimacy. Look at little sentence 13 and 14 on page 4, and you can see these words written. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. Do you notice that really deep emotion in that sentence? Well, you won't, because it's not there. There's a word there that the original writers who wrote in Hebrew, that's the Old Testament, that's written about 3,000 years ago, um, they wrote and used a word that is so heavily emotive and visceral and uh, rich in meaning that the people in the NIV who wrote this version of the Bible, they struggled to find the right word. So verse 13, you see the word compassion. That's not a bad attempt, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more overwhelming than that. 
This is a word that means, it's a word that, that mothers feel when their milk comes in. If you want to see a protective person, if you want to see a really protective and emotional uh, and uh, an overwhelming expression of love, just wait till you see a child being born and then a mum's milk come in. And they are bonded to this little mite with anything. They would die for this child. They've only just given birth to them. But they are indelibly linked to the well-being of this little person. That's the word. It's a deeply visceral, emotive, powerful, love-saturated word. And God has the audacity to say, that's how I feel about you. That's how much I love you. It's compassion, but it's so much more than that. It's deep, it's powerful. This is the kind of love I have for my children. Why? Look at verse 14. You'll see the little word for, it means because. Why does God love us in this overwhelming unbelievably rich way because of who we are. We're described as 14 as dust. We're frail, we're fragile. We're broken, we're rebels according to God and according to the Bible. If I'm honest with you, I'm pretty much of a wreck. James was saying this morning has been hard. We've battled over what colour clothes children wear. We've battled over behaviour. Every parent knows that and every adult knows that too. It doesn't get any easier. We're fragile, but we're wonderfully formed and made. But also, we're broken. And here's the point from verse 13 and then to sentence 14. God loves us in this undeniably rich and powerful and overwhelming way. Even though he knows how weak and broken and fragile and needy we are, God still loves us. In other words, it's not based on how good we are. It's based on God's love for us. It's a statement and an emotion and an expression and demonstration of his love. You can have friends and they can be understanding. Yeah? You can have um, bosses and they can be compassionate. You can have family members and they can be really, really generous. But there's always a limit. Yeah? You, can be, you can reach me on six days of the week. Saturday, very hard to reach me because it's my day off. And I think unless it's an emergency, you can look after yourselves. It's called tough love, but I do love you really. There are limits and boundaries to friendship. There are limits and boundaries to the compassion that a boss has. There's a limit to the amount of money that my brother will lend me. He's a brother and we're that close. But parents know almost no limits. When you become a parent, and when God describes himself as a father to his children, all limits are off. You've got access 24-7 as long as I'm awake. You've got access to my resources. All this will be yours one day, I say to my children. When it comes to a parent, there are no boundaries. Your heart is intimately linked and bound to the happiness of your child. Someone said, a parent is only as happy as their unhappiest child. I think that's true. So when a child is sad, you're sad, as long as they're your child. When your child is spurned, you feel spurned and rejected. Uh, when a child is happy, then you feel happy too. And God says... The reason your parents and their hearts are so intimately linked to the welfare of their children is because that is just an echo. It's a shadow. It's a mirror image of how I feel to you. My heart is that intimately bound and linked to you. Verse 13 and 14 show us that. I'm your father if you're my child. 
My heart is bound to your welfare. Welfare. I'm cons concerned with how you are. Nothing will happen to you that is not for your good and growth because I'm a loving and caring, compassionate father. My heart is bound to yours. All of us need a love like that. And you can say as an adult, in fact, all of our lives are on a search for love like that. A love supreme, as the song says. A love that ensures safety, a love that ensures security. Where can we find a love like this? All of our lives are on a search for a love that strong, that unbreakable. You won't find it from a lover. You won't find it from a prime minister. You won't find it from a friend. You may not even find it from a parent here this morning. But there is a love that is that strong, that is that absolute, that is that secure. And God says you can only find that love if you find me. Because love is about intimacy. You're dust, but my love is stronger than that. You're fragile, but my love is more uh, overwhelming than that. My love and the fact that I'm a father is about intimacy. Secondly, it's about grace. Living in intimacy and then living in grace if you're a child of God, if you're a son and daughter of God. Look at living in grace, verses 8 to 10. These are remarkable sentences. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Look at what these verses say. Verse 10, it says that we are a rebel. The Bible uses the word sinner. It means a rebellious person. It says, verse 10, that we do something called iniquity. It says, verse 12, can you see the word transgression? Transgression means a, a willfully stepping on the grass. You know the worst thing you can do if you are a person at the National Trust? We went to well, Hampton Court. We went there two Saturdays ago. Don't step on the grass. As soon as that sign is there, I'm going to tread on it. I'm sorry, but that's a sign of my willful rebelliousness. And each one of us treat God in exactly the same way. God, we know you're there. We know your rules. But we want to say, shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. It's a willful rebelliousness. It says that in verse 12. And in verse 14, it says that we are dust. We've looked at this word already. We're weak. We're rebels. We're transgressors, and yet, look down at sentence 17. Look at sentence 17. That's who we are, but how does God respond? God is our Father, and he says, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's, that's God's, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and those who are in covenant with him. Here is a remarkable <coughs> truth. Just like a parent will love their child no matter what, no matter how much heartbreak, no matter how much student debt they rack up, no, how, no matter how many times they've got to go and pick him up when it's one o'clock in the morning and you've been in bed for a few hours already. Here is a truth that is remarkable. God loves his children no matter what. In spite of the fact that we are real, willfully saying, shove off God, I want to live my life so I'm in charge, not you. I don't want to give your uh, commandments and your truth a second thought. No to your rules. Although we live like that, God loves us. And he loves us enough to get angry at us. What do I mean by that? A sign of love and compassion is anger. You notice that from these sentences here? When a child lies, when one of my children lies again, because I'm a liar, so are they, 
If I love them, I'm not going to let that go unchecked. I'm going to get involved, I'm going to get down to their eye level, and I'm going to challenge that behaviour, because I don't want them to become a liar habitually, because it breaks trust, it ruins families, it causes pain. I'm mad with the lying, and I want them to change, but I don't just want to change behaviour, I want their hearts to change, and that's something that I can't do and only God can. But our relationship is under threat because they've lied, and so I want to challenge their behaviour and try and correct them. And whatever thing I do, right, that's 10 minutes off your watching. Again, yes. Okay, you've got to go and sit on the step. Again, yes, it's your step. It's named after you because you're there so often. Whatever means I think about, I want to challenge their behaviour because I love them. I'm mad at what you've done and I want your heart to be changed. And so I'm going to try and discipline you in a creative and appropriate way. And my unhappiness and my day is going to change because of the discipline that I'm going to put in place. And because God loves us, he gets angry at our sin as well. He doesn't just look over it, he doesn't whitewash it, he doesn't forget it. He has to do something about it. Fathers get angry, mothers get angry. But does God get angry as I do? There are two ways that we can get angry, can't we, as parents? There are two ways. Here's the first way. I can get angry because I want my child's heart to change. And so I put in the appropriate amount of uh, discipline. I say, right, okay, these are the conditions that you've broken and this is what I want you to do to try and make it right. And I want you to say sorry, even if it's through gritted teeth. My heart is for their good and I want the behaviour to change and the heart to change. That's the first right appropriate use of discipline. But if I'm honest, there's a second use as well. Sometimes, when my children have lied and they've made my life hard, I am not going to discipline them for their good. I'm going to get my own back. I was watching that football match. Because I've had to sort out this thing with you and your brother, you're going to pay. Ten minutes becomes half an hour. And I motivate, not out of love, but out of anger. I'm going to get my own back on you. I was relaxing, but now you've ruined it. So you're not going to watch any TV for the whole of the week. I go completely off the wall. I'm not concerned with their well-being. I'm not mad for their sake. I'm mad for my sake. And I get angry, and I'm going to give payback, and I'm going to give even more. They're going to have discipline to the max, and my heart is wrong. You've made me look bad with friends at church. You've made me feel ashamed. And they get ripped into, not in front of everybody, of course, because we keep up the facade, but when we get in the car, I'm going to tear them off a strip because you have caused my credibility as a parent to fall through the floor. At that point, I'm not disciplining out of love. I'm disciplining out of anger. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to cause you harm. All through discipline, motivated not out of anger, but anger that's misdirected. This passage says that God never disciplines in that way. God never gives us what we deserve. God has compassion on us. God never uh, disciplines in a way that's payback. He never does that. He never does retribution. How do we know? Because the gospel, the good news of the gospel says every punishment that we deserve does not fall on us, but it falls on Jesus when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. If God wanted to judge us as our sins deserve, then we would pay. But God has made a way through his son so that all the sins and punishment that we deserve, he says, I will pay and I will make a way so that you can be my friend and child. 
God disciplines us, and when things happen for our good and growth, it's never payback. We've got to remember that. It's never payback. He's never abandoned us, and he never, ever will. It's hard to believe sometimes when bad things happen to us in our lives. He will never abandon us. He will never treat us in retribution. All things work for our good. There's a man called John Newton, and he once wrote a letter to a lady who was suffering. And he said these sentences, Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds, that he keeps back. God is your good, good father. And so some things that you will experience in your life will be hard. They will be painful. There will be tears. There will be brokenheartedness. There will be sweat-filled, sleepless nights as you're concerned about something. But God is never paying you back for something you've done wrong. He's not vindictive. He's not capricious. He's a good, loving father. And everything that happens in your life ultimately is for your good and for your growth. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds because he's your father. Friends, if we believe that, Christian friends, we will be people of poise. We will be people who cry like everyone else cries but we would know the heart of our Father in heaven who has sent pain into our lives or difficulty into our lives for our good and growth. Because we're convinced that we know that the Father is good and he knows what he is doing, even when we can't see it. We'll be people of poise. But you can only know the God behind the clouds, the God who's smiling his providence on us, even through pain and suffering, we can only know that if you enter a relationship with him. Not everybody on this planet is a child of God. You have to know him personally in a four-dimensional way, not a 3D alien black and white way. You've got to know him personally. And for that to happen, you need to receive something. It's not about what it means for God to be a father. It means intimacy, knowing him personally. It means his grace, not receiving what we deserve. But how do you enjoy a relationship like that? Look at verse 13. It says that, he has compassion on his children, those who fear him, verse 13. Sentence 18, those who keep his covenant, those who are in a special relationship with him. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Hebrew loves to repeat things, and those two things are not different. They're the same thing. People who know God as their heavenly father, people who enjoy a relationship with him, are people who fear him, and people who, verse 18, sentence 18, keep his covenant promises. How do you know a relationship like that? Well, it's, it's a response of gratitude. A response of gratitude. If God is a father who loves us intimately, who showers his grace upon us, who withholds nothing that is for our good, only for what is good and for our maturity and growth, how do we respond? Thirdly, we respond with gratitude. With gratitude. Look at verse 15 and 16. Do we receive what we deserve? No. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows it over and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. Dave referred to it in prayer. On, on Tuesday, I stood at the foot of a hospital bed of a 41-year-old lady who died that afternoon. It's a complete bolt out of the blue to us, but not to God. And as I was in the room with uh, my friend, her, father, uh, her husband, 
I received the awful news that you never want to hear. There's nothing more we can do for her. Now, because my heart is a rebellious heart, that impact lasted for about two days. And then life went on. But one thing I was reminded of this week is just how fragile we are. Look at this sentence, verse 15 into 16. I am like grass, I am like dust, and soon I'll be remembered no more. But the Bible says that is not what it was supposed to be like. That is not what it was supposed to be like. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden, a beautiful garden to tend and to keep. God spoke a world into being and then existed in all its beauty and order. We were never supposed to die. We were never supposed to live as rebels. We were supposed to live under the loving rule of God as his friends and as his companions, enjoying his loving rule. But we lost our place because of our choices. We are now forgotten. We are temporary rather than permanent and eternal. We're going to pass away like my friend did at 41 years old, leaving four children and a husband grieving. We will pass away like grass. But the whole point of this passage is this, and of the good news of the gospel, we do not receive what we deserve. Now, how is that possible? How do we not receive what we deserve? Here's how. I've said to you this morning that God is our father. James is Alice's father. Caroline is Alice's mother. God is our father, but we don't receive what we deserve. And there is one time when Jesus, the son of God, did not call God his father just once, and it's when he was on the cross. And Jesus, carrying all the sins and rebellion from my heart and yours and the sins of the world, cried out, my God, he doesn't say daddy, because there's been a forgottenness, a forsakenness. Their relationship has been ripped in two at this time, for the only time in all of eternity. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forgotten? Why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Here's the cash value of what this means. If you're new to Christian things, please listen. Jesus lost his relationship with his father. Why? So that we could have one. Jesus was forgotten by his father just for a moment so that we could be remembered forever. Jesus took what we deserve so that we will receive what he has earned. That's the great news of the gospel. You think, well, that's too good to be true. If you're thinking that, you're beginning to understand that it is true. Friends, you can only know God as your father if you know Jesus personally. You can only call out and rest in the truth that Jesus is for you, that he loves you, that he knows you, that he wants a relationship with you. If you believe that truth, that when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he died for me and he died for you. It wasn't an optional extra. He died because... Our rebelliousness had to be paid for, it had to be dealt with. And so God says, I want to treat my children not as they deserve. And the only way for that to happen is if I treat you, Jesus, as they deserve. But that's not enough. Notice at the beginning of this passage, verse 1 and 2, sentence 1 and 2, is not just believing in that truth because we're so forgetful. Verse 1 and sentence 2 as well, it says, Oh my soul, David is talking to himself. Oh my soul, oh my soul, praise his holy name. It says that at the end of verse 23 as well. He's talking to himself. Don't forget what God is like. Now that's because we do. So we need to remember and enjoy 
all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And we're so forgetful. So we need to remind ourselves every day what Jesus has done for us. But let me close with this. Whenever you talk about God being a father, the Bible also talks about God acting like a mother hen. For some of us, that's really, really painful. And we need to acknowledge that because our earthly parents did not treat us as how we longed for and how we wanted. If that's you, can you listen to one more sentence from another part of the Bible? It's in the same book. It's in Psalm 27, verse 10. It says this, Though my father and my mother forsake me, though they forget me, the Lord will receive me. That may describe your experience growing up. You lived, up, lived in a home where your parents did not treat you as you deserve or not give you the love that you longed for. When you think about how you were raised, it's, it's a source of pain. And that sentence says, Though my father and mother, though they forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Friends, if that's your experience on earth, this is what you need. You need to know the God who made you and who loves you unconditionally. This is what you need if you're a parent and you feel like a failure as you've raised your children. This is what you need if you feel lonely. You need to know a God whose love is secure and big and vast as the oceans. You need to behold that love that turns you from orphans into sons and daughters. You need to behold that love. And you need to take hold of your soul, like David did in sentence 1 and sentence 2 and sentence 23. And you need to grab your heart and say, look. Look at God's love for me. And if you want to know how big it is, you look at the cross, where God is hanging in your place for your sake, so that you can know God, not remotely, not as a one-dimensional force or a two-dimensional way, but you can know him personally and intimately and enjoy his grace all the days of your life. If you want to know more about that, please come and see me afterwards. But let me pray, and then we'll sing again. Father, when we think about family dynamics, it is a source of joy as we reflect on um, parents who've raised us and nurtured us and loved us. But it's also a source of pain and concern and regret. And I pray for us all here that you would help us, please, to see the love that you have for us and that Jesus was forsaken for us. He was forgotten for us. Your relationship was ruined temporarily for us so that we, rather than being your enemies, could not just be your friends, but we could be children, we could be adopted, we could be rescued, we could be <coughs> ransomed. A price was paid for us. Father, we pray again for James and for Caroline as they raise Alice and Thomas and Phoebe, and we pray for each one of us as parents that we would see the great responsibility and opportunities we have to point our little ones to you if we're Christians. And if we're not yet Christians, I pray, please, you'd help us to see more and more who you are. You're a God who's not far away, but you're a God who's intimately involved and compassionately loves us. And we can look no further than the cross and to see the height, the width, and the depths of which you love us. Thank you for not staying far away, but for coming into human history and in dying in our place and rescuing us for your glory's sake and for our ultimate good. Amen.